All right. Well, it, it is good to be here with you guys uh, this morning. I've been traveling quite a bit for work, so I'm glad that in God's providence, uh, he allowed this weekend not to be one in which I was traveling. Otherwise, I was just going to send Edwin an email last night and say you're up and see what happens. So. Um, I mean, that still may happen, Edwin. So. Um, you just keep that in mind. But, uh, but did travel a lot. I, I traveled a lot as a, as a child as well. And one of the things that I remember seeing, even though I was young, were the crown jewels when we lived in London. So we lived there just for a year, but we got to go to the Tower of London and see the crown jewels. Anyone else seen the crown jewels? Yeah. It, it's an amazing display. Right? I mean, these things have been used in coronations for centuries. They're displayed in the Tower of London where they've been for centuries. And tens of thousands of people every year make the journey to London and then specifically to the Tower of London in order to be able to see the crown jewels. Uh, it, it's an amazing display, right, and, and an impressive one. But equally as impressive as the display is the defense of the crown jewels that's provided by the British government. They take these things seriously. Right? No one has ever even come close to stealing the crown jewels other than a man called Colonel Blood in 1671. He's the only one that even came close. He actually managed to, to get St. Edward's crown and begin to leave the premises, but he didn't actually make it off the premises. But since then, no one's even come close. And there's a reason for that. It's because they're so zealously guarded. There's active duty military positioned in the Tower of London. All the beef eaters, you know, their fancy uniforms that people go to see, you may not know this, but they're all retired military. They have to serve 22 years in the British military before they can become a beef eater. So there's two separate groups of military personnel. There are all kinds of sensors, lasers, infrared. It's shielded behind bomb-proof glass. And if all that isn't enough, there's a 16-ton steel cage that can be dropped down in place to protect the crown jewels. So the British government wants them on display, but they also want them defended. That's what we're going to see this morning as we look at 2 Kings 5, where what's on display and what is being defended here is the mercy of God. He's going to put this on display in a pretty startling way in the beginning of the chapter, and as we progress to the end of the chapter, we'll see that he is serious about defending his free gift of mercy. Uh, by way of a little reminder where we've been, God has been working, specifically we've been looking at the northern kingdom of Israel over the past several weeks. The end of 1 Kings and the beginning of 2 Kings is focused on the northern kingdom of Israel. They have a whole succession of wicked kings. They're not following Yahweh, their covenant God. God has been working to bring them back. He, he gave Elisha the mantle of his prophet after Elijah was taken up to heaven in order to serve Yahweh in the efforts to bring Israel back to him. And today he's going to showcase his mercy and, and show that it's important for him to protect the free gift and the proper understanding of it. So the theme for today's passage is that God is always putting his mercy on display, and we have two responses. We'll see both of these. We can either respond with humble obedience and faith, leading to God's healing, or with a selfish contempt for his mercy, leading to God's wrath. There's only two options, and we'll see them both in 2 Kings chapter 5. So if you would, turn with me to, to 2 Kings 5, if you're not already there, and we'll begin with the first eight verses. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master, and highly respected, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. 
and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now, see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Stop there. The first thing we're going to see in the passage this morning is that God's providence paves the way for his mercy. And you can see in those first eight verses, there's a providential chain of interaction. Right? We're introduced to five different characters in rapid succession that culminate with Naaman ending up in the presence of Yahweh's prophet, Elisha. And so the first one that we're introduced to is Naaman himself. A few things we need to understand about Naaman in order for this to make sense this morning. Naaman is an Aramean. That is, he's a Syrian. He is not an Israelite. Aram, or Syria, is to the northeast of Israel. Now, if you recall, Aram and Israel have been at war three separate times leading up to this point. Under the, the leadership of wicked King Ahab, Aram and Israel fought three wars. The first two, Israel won. The third one, Aram won. These countries are enemies. They are not friends. That's important for us to understand about who Naaman is. Secondly, we're given a pretty impressive resume for Naaman. It says he was the captain of the army of the king of Aram. He's the commanding general of the armies that have been waging war against Israel. It says he was a great man with his master. His master is the king. And the king highly respects Naaman. He relies on him. That phrase, he was a great man with his master, implies that there is great respect between the king and Naaman. Naaman is second in charge in Aram. He was also well-known and respected by the people because he'd won a bunch of victories. And interestingly, it's not the main thrust, but just a note, it says that the Lord had given victory to Aram through Naaman. Just a side note there that, that Yahweh is not only the God of Israel, even in the Old Testament, he's determining whether Aram wins wars, even though they are not the chosen people of, of God. So the people respect him. And it says he was a valiant warrior. So not only is this guy a great leader, he's not just a good strategist or a good general for the army, he's a valiant warrior himself. Interesting to note because it means that Naaman has probably killed many Israelites with his own hand. A valiant warrior. The only blemish on this guy's perfect resume is that he's a leper, right? That bomb is dropped kind of at the end almost as a, a shocking statement after all of these great things. And then the end of verse 1 says, but he was a leper. Now, clearly, the Syrians have a different view of leprosy than the Israelites, right? He, he's allowed, as a leper, to maintain his high position in the Syrian government, number two in charge. Now, in Israel, obviously, that would be a whole different ball of wax, wouldn't it? In Israel, lepers were outcast. They were sent out of the camp. We've looked at this before, but just to remind you, Numbers 5, 1 through 3 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the sons of Israel that they send away from the camp every leper, 
You shall send away both male and female. You shall send them outside the camp so that they will not defile their camp where I dwell in their midst. There were practical reasons for that, for health purposes, but there were also theological reasons for that because leprosy was often used as an analogy or a sign of sin. If you remember Miriam, Moses' sister, was punished with leprosy for speaking out against God. We'll see in 2 Chronicles 15, King Uzziah is going to be punished with leprosy for, for trying to conduct a priestly duty. So there were reasons that God separated lepers, but, but not so in Aram. Now, leprosy in the Old Testament can mean a, a wide variety of skin diseases. Some of them were curable, and, and they would heal over time. Some were not. Some were not only fatal, but degenerative. You would get worse and worse until eventually it was a fatal disease. This is clearly the kind of leprosy that Naaman had. We know that because as second in command in Aram, as a man highly respected by the king, Naaman would have had access to every possible cure, holy treatment, you know, prophet in Aram that that there was. He would have undergone every possible treatment and nothing was working. And it's bad enough that he's about to take radical action to try to cure his leprosy. So this is a fatal degenerative disease that Naaman has. And as it turns out, he has one last-ditch effort to find a cure, which is where we're introduced to our second character, an Israelite slave girl. I mentioned that Aram and Israel were at war, or had been. There had been three wars already. We'll see next chapter there's about to be a fourth. Right now there's no open war, but there's raiding parties and skirmishes going on across the border. And the Aramaeans have been invading Israel and carrying off captives. And one of them is this Israelite girl who's been kidnapped and is now a slave in Naaman's household and serves his wife. Now as such, you might think, well, she certainly is going to want to have nothing to do with helping out her kidnappers. But in God's providence, that's not the kind of slave girl that she is. She tells her, her mistress, Naaman's wife, hey, there's a guy in Israel that can deal with this. There's a prophet there who can do amazing things, and if Naaman can, can get in contact with him, he can cure his leprosy. I know nothing here in Aram has worked, but, but this prophet can do that. Now, why exactly she was so compassionate and hospitable to her kidnappers? I don't know. But in God's providence, that's the way it worked out. And you can definitely see his hand moving in this situation because there's a Jewish girl with knowledge of Elisha. Not everyone would have had that knowledge. Only those living close enough to Samaria in Israel that they would have seen or heard about his deeds, right? There's no Twitter or Snapchat here. So this Israelite slave girl that has knowledge of Elisha and his service to Yahweh finds herself in the service of a pagan man who has a disease that only Yahweh can cure. Certainly providence there. And so then we find the king of Aram, right? Naaman hears this from this slave girl, goes to his master, the king, and says, all right, look, I got a crazy idea. And you got to understand how ridiculous and foolish this idea must sound to the king. The text just says he goes to the king, and the king says, okay, here, I'll give you some gifts. But, But Naaman is coming to the king of Aram saying, hey, look, I want to go directly into the heart of our enemy territory, right? People that I've killed with my own hand and whom I've led our armies against three separate times, and I'm going to ask for a personal favor. You're going to do what? King of Aram has got to know that's a, that's a really terrible plan. You're a strategist. You should know better than that. That's bad. But Naaman convinces him, and because the king has such respect for Naaman, eventually he concedes and says, okay, All right, this is crazy, but if you're going to do this, look, we've got to do it right. 
I'm going to send with you a letter to the king of Israel so he knows this is not the beginning of an invasion. It's not a spy trip, right? I'm going to send the, a letter to the king so he knows this is a personal favor to me by healing you. Right? And, and why do they send it to the king? I mean, why not just go straight to Elisha? Because in Aram, like most pagan countries, the prophets worked for the king, right? The king wanted something. He just demanded the prophet do it, and, and they did. Now, clearly, the king of Aram here, which, by the way, is most likely Ben-Hadad II, does not understand that the relationship between the kings of Israel and the prophets in Israel are, are not that way, right? Far from demanding anything from a prophet, the king of Israel is usually reprimanded by the prophets. But, but Ben-Hadad doesn't know that. So he goes, okay, go to the king. I'll send a letter, and I'm going to give you some gifts, right? He, we've we've got to pacify the king of Israel so he knows this is not an act of war. A lot of times the Old Testament, these weights and measures can sort of fly over our head, but we're told that he sent 10 talents of silver. Okay, what does that mean? Well, it's 750 pounds of silver. Okay, still doesn't really give me an idea of, of how much money that was then. Well, if you remember from back in 1 Kings, an earlier king of Israel, King Omri, bought the entire region of land around Samaria, the, the capital of Israel, the whole region where he built his capital city for two talents of silver. The king of Aram is sending 10. This is a fortune. It's enough to buy a small country. Plus, he's sending gold on top of that. This is an extravagant gift to make sure that this situation doesn't spiral out of control. And so they, they go. Right? Naaman takes the gift. He takes his whole retinue, and they travel all the way from Damascus all the way through Israel into the center of the nation to Samaria to the king of Israel. He's our next introduction, and his response is, is one that's typical, unfortunately, of the kings, where he says, oh, this is all about me. <laughs> right, he looks at it and says, oh, you're sending me a guy to cure of leprosy? I can't do that. Right, his exclamation almost makes it sound like he's acknowledging God's power when he says, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me? But he's not actually acknowledging God's power. And we know that because he doesn't even think of Elisha or of inquiring of God how to cure this man's leprosy. All he's really saying there is, I'm limited, I can't do it. And, and he says, clearly, if he's sending to me a man to cure of his leprosy, which he highly respects, and I can't do it, he's really just looking to pick a fight. And that's what he says. See how, how he's seeking a quarrel against me. So the king of Israel is totally inward-focused. He, he's not concerned with the fact that God probably could cure this. He knows who Elisha is and what he's done. But that doesn't even cross his brain. Right? He doesn't send for Elisha and say, look, you deal with this. I can't do this. Nope. He tears his clothes and goes into a, a panic state because he's only looking at, at me. How does this affect me? Not a great response. Thankfully, we get to Elisha. Right? Now, whether Elisha has kind of a series of informants that keeps him informed of what's going on in the king's palace or whether God just revealed it to him, we're not sure. But, but he learns that the king's in his panic state. And Elisha, unlike the king of Israel, is, is looking at God going, okay, what are you doing in this situation? And so he sends to the king and says, look, don't freak out. Send the man to me. And he will know that there's a prophet in Israel. Now, what, what did Elisha mean by that? He, he wasn't looking at himself. It wasn't like, ah, he can come to me, the prophet. Now, we know from earlier character studies from Elisha that that he is fully aware and, and humbled himself to be a spokesman. When he says, send him to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel, what he's saying is that he will know that God is moving in Israel, that our God is the God, 
and that the God is his only hope. That's what he's saying. So this providential series of events, the first thing that we see, God is setting up a display of his mercy that, that most wouldn't comprehend. Before we move on, though, one quick thing we need to look at is that that God's mercy is going to be at work here despite wrong motives. You can see this all through the first character studies. Now, the the slave girl has a a reasonable motive, right? She's looking out for the welfare of her master. That's that's commendable. The king of Aram and Naaman, though, what are they looking to get out of this? They're not in this for, for God's glory. They're in it for themselves, right? Naaman wants to be healed. And the king of Aram wants his general healed so he can keep him. Right? For them, God, whether it's the God of Israel, the God of Aram, the God of Canaan, I don't care. As long as he gives me what I want, I'm happy to go seek it. Right? For them, God is a means to an end. Not a great motive, and yet God will use it nonetheless. And the king of Israel, well, he's certainly not thinking about God's glory. He's concerned with himself. How do I get out of this bad situation? That's all that he's concerned with. Elisha was the only one that that had the fully correct view. God is going to move here. God can work in this situation. And God is going to do something that puts his character and his mercy on display. So what's the application for us? Well, it's not too tricky. First of all, we just need to remember that God is always at work. When the slave girl was carried away captive, kidnapped from her family, taken to a foreign country, she was not thinking, oh, God's going to use this later on to perform a a miracle that will speak to the people. That was not what she considered, and yet that's what was happening. God was moving even in the midst of a difficult circumstance. We can't always see it, but God is always at work. The scripture on every page speaks of what God is doing. We don't always see it. We don't always get to understand it, but he's always at work. We need to keep that in mind. And and second of all, we need to double-check our own motives. When we go to God, are we going to seek a favor like Naaman? Is this just a a means to an end for us? You can see this in in little kids' prayers a lot, right? When when I say prayers with some of my younger kids, right, they, they often sound like this. God, help me to do well on my test. Help me to be able to get along with my friend. Help my sibling to not be such a jerk, right? All these, help me, help me, you know, help me not have to do my chore. That one never works, right? Help me, help me, help me. But what are they saying, right? They don't understand it, but really when they're, the only prayers that they pray consist of God help me, they're putting themselves in the position of priority and God is a servant. God, you're just here to help me get what I want. That was Naaman's motive. That was the king of Aram's motive. Sometimes that can even be ours. We are to pray for God to help us, without a doubt. But there ought to be other components of our prayer life other than just, God, help me get what I want. Because that puts God in the position of servant. And that's backwards. So we need to be careful as we look at our own motives. Well, secondly, now we're going to see God perform a startling conversion through his mercy. This was all set up. And, and here we come to, to God moving. Verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, 
I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. An interesting account. The first thing we see here from Naaman is a proud fool's expectations. He's got some expectations, doesn't he? He came seeking Elisha, but he came with some preconceived ideas of how this was going to go down. The first thing that we see is that he expected royal treatment. Right? So he shows up with his horses, his chariot, his private guard, all these gifts, servants to help him out. Right? This is a royal parade going through Samaria from, from the palace to Elisha's house. He shows up, expects to be treated in accordance with his station, and he is sorely disappointed. Elisha doesn't even meet him face to face as would have befit a prince of Aram. He sends a messenger, says, hey, here's what you got to go do. That is not the way Naaman is accustomed to being treated. He's, he's peeved. Right? What, what do you mean sending a messenger to me? Do you not know who I am? He's got some royal expectations. Now, there's different views on why Elisha did it this way. I think the, the most likely, based on the rest of the text, is that Elisha wanted Naaman to understand, or more accurately, God wanted Naaman to understand, what I'm about to do for you has nothing to do with your position. Nothing to do with the fact that you're a prince, that you're wealthy, that you're powerful, that you're second in charge of Aram. That's not the way I operate. So Naaman gets treated like a commoner. His second expectation, besides royal treatment, was a flashy prescription. Right? He expected there to be some complex ritual or ceremony, right? Oh, the prophet's going to come out and he's going to make a big show. He's going to call on God. There's going to be waving and yelling and... And then something's going to happen, right? Now, why did he expect that? Because that's what all the things he'd been through in Aram looked like. Those were common ways for pagan prophets to conduct rituals and exercises in the name of their false gods. It was all show, all spectacle. So that's what he expects. He expects God to show up with sensationalism. It's not the way that our God works most often, is it? Oh, he can be sensational, like on Mount Carmel when he's trying to teach a lesson to an entire nation. But most often, God works in small and quiet ways, doesn't he? Remember Elisha after Mount Carmel, right? We, we learned about that a couple months ago when, when Elisha, after all this had gone on, he's feeling dejected, he's feeling depressed, he's feeling alone. And God shows up to encourage him, 1 Kings 9, 11 through 12. And God said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. And that's when God spoke to Elijah. That's the God that we serve. Not a God of spectacle, not a God of show, but a God who moves quietly and personally. So Naaman is 
He's upset. And then he says, not only is this prescription not flashy enough, but it's really ridiculous. Right? Go and bathe in, in the Jordan seven times. Why would I do that? I've bathed hundreds of times before. It hasn't helped. And he says, aren't, aren't the, the rivers of Damascus better than Jordan? And, and in this, he's objectively correct. This is the Barada, the, the current name of Farpar, one of the, the rivers that Naaman mentions. The rivers that flow through Damascus come out of the mountains in Syria. They're mountain streams. They move fast. They're fresh. They're clear. They're cold. They're nice rivers. Then you have the Jordan. The Jordan is not a mountain stream. <laughs> the Jordan flows through plains, often slowly and sluggishly, which means that quite frequently in a lot of areas the Jordan is muddy. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm with Naaman. If i got to pick one of these two, it's not going to be the Jordan. All right? He's like, this doesn't even make any sense. What is this God saying? Why would I go bathe in the muddy Jordan? I've got way better streams back home. Naaman's expectations were not met the way that, that he thought God should move because our God is not the kind of God that he was accustomed to worshiping in his false religion. Thankfully, though, that's not the end of the narrative. We get to verse 13. Then his servants came near, and, and they encouraged Naaman, look, <laughs> if he'd asked you to do something complex, you would have done it. We know because we've seen you do it. You've been through all sorts of complex rituals back in Aram. Y you were willing to do those, so... Why not just, just take this man at his word, see what this God of Israel has to offer, go to the Jordan and bathe. It's not a big deal. Now, Naaman here has a change of heart. Right? We're, it, it's interesting that we're told he went away in a rage twice. Naaman was headed back north to Damascus. He left Elisha, and he turned north to hightail at home. And somewhere along that path, his servants convince him, no, no, don't do that. Turn around. And go to the Jordan. Now, the Jordan didn't flow through Samaria, where Naaman was when he talked with Elisha. It's 20 miles east. He's got to change direction from going north to Aram to going east, a several-day journey to get to the Jordan. And he decides to do it. Now, this was a decision of humility on Naaman's part. I think about the expectations that he had. In order to do this, Naaman has to say, okay, I will overlook the fact that this prophet treated me like dirt. I'm going to overlook the fact that this prescription of his God makes no sense. It's ridiculous. I'm going to overlook all that. I'm going to listen to my servants, even though I'm a prince. I'm going to take their advice, and I'm going to make the journey over to the Jordan and see what this God has to offer. It's a decision of humility. So how does it play out? Well, we see a servant's change of heart, verse 15. As we go through the next couple verses, I want you to note a, a change in Naaman of two different things, the way he views the God of Israel and the way he views himself. Watch for those as we read, verse 15. When he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. But he, meaning Elisha, said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Naaman said, If not, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offering, nor will he sacrifice to other gods but to the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant, when my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, and he leans on my hand and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, 
When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him some distance. The first thing we see Naaman do after this several day journey from the Jordan back to Elisha's house, as he's had some time to contemplate what's going on here, is this amazing profession of faith. And don't miss what he says. He doesn't merely say, okay, now I know that the God of Israel is a God, right? I will feed him into the worship of all of my Aramean gods and all the other gods I worship. No, he says, your God, not only is he real, is he a God, he is the only God in all the earth. Now, why would he say that? That's a pretty strong statement. I mean, sure, he just got healed of leprosy, but, but he's been worshiping false gods all his life. Why suddenly is he convinced that this God is the only God? Because we've got to remember, this man has been through everything possible that the false gods had to offer, and not one of them showed up. And then he goes and bathes seven times in a muddy stream, and he's healed completely. And so he says, look, I've tried all the others. There are no others. This God is the only God. What an amazing profession of faith he makes. And if you think back to verse 8, when Elisha was giving the reason that Naaman should come, he said, send Naaman to me, and he will know that there is a God in Israel. He will know that our God is the God, and that's exactly what just happened in verse 15. Naaman says, your God is the only God. A startling confession. Second of all, we see that the Naaman here has a desire for faithfulness, but, but he needs some discipleship, does he not? Right, first, he tries to pay for his service. That's because in a pagan culture, that was customary. Right? All those circumstances and rituals he went through in Aram, he paid for. So he tries to pay Elisha. And Elisha says, no, that's not how our God works either. As Yahweh lives, before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And Naaman really tried, he, he's like, no, seriously, I've got I to gotta pay for this. I know how this works. Elisha says, no, I'm not taking anything. Our God doesn't do that. And so Naaman says, all right, well, if I can't pay for that, at least let me take some, some soil back to Aram with me. Now, why does he ask for that? Because in Aram and in most pagan cultures in that time, they viewed gods or deities as local, right? A god served this region and, or this region, right? And we know that was true in Aram. If you remember back in the, the first two wars that Aram had with Israel, after they lose the first, all the, the army goes to the king of Aram in 1 Kings 20, 23, and they say this, now the servants of the king of Aram said to him, The Israelites' gods are gods of the mountains. Therefore, they were stronger than we when we fought in the mountains. But rather, let us fight against them in the plains, and surely we will be stronger than they. Right? They think, oh, it was just because we fought in the wrong area where that god's stronger than this god. Gods were local. So Naaman is trying to take some soil back to Aram so he can worship the Israelite god on Israelite soil, even way up in Damascus. I, I mean, good intentions, right? The guy's trying to be faithful, but, but he needs some discipleship here. He doesn't really know how Yahweh is to be worshipped. We also see it because he's, he's concerned that when he goes back to Damascus, he knows he's going to have to participate in the false pagan religion that the king of Aram is, is still going to be practicing. When they go into the temple of Rimmon, he says, when he leans on my hand, that's a, a phrase for the fact that I have to be there with him. I'm his right-hand man. He says, look, I'm going to have to go into the temple of Rimmon and, and go through these worship services, but just understand I'm not really worshiping. I need you and your God to know that. I'm just, I'm just going through the motions because it's part of my job. Right? Again, good intentions right? to, to try to relay the fact that, 
He's not falsely worshiping a rimen, but our God doesn't work that way either, does he? God is a jealous God who not only wants our worship on the inside, but he doesn't allow us to even be perceived to be worshiping false gods. That's not acceptable in his sight. But there is a desire for faithfulness on the part of this immature believer. So what do we see in this part? I mean, this is a startling conversion. What's the application for us? This is a gospel narrative. I mean, you probably saw that as we walked through it. This entire account is a gospel narrative played out in, in real time, in real events, for everyone in Israel to see. I mean, think about the parallels here. Naaman had a fatal disease. This leprosy was killing him, and he couldn't cure it. You and I have a fatal disease as well before God gets a hold of us. It's called self. And we can't cure ourselves of self. Naaman was an enemy of God's people. He wasn't just a pagan. Right? This wasn't just some guy that's a non-Israelite. There were lots of those. He was specifically an enemy of Israel and the commanding general of the armies that had slaughtered Israelites. There's no one else that's more an enemy of Israel than Naaman. We're an enemy of God as well. James 4.4, 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's where we started out. We started out as Naaman. There was no more enemy of God than all of us. Naaman heard a witness that pointed him to the one and only cure. In God's providence, this young slave girl who knew of Elisha and his power and had enough confidence in Yahweh, not only that he could cure a leper, because Elisha had never done that, she was not only confident that Yahweh could, but that he would. That he would show mercy, not just to, to a non-Israelite, but to Naaman. That's how confident she was in her God. And all of us that have come to believe had a witness as well. Parent, pastor, coach, friend, relative, sibling. Somebody pointed us to the one possible cure for our disease of self. Romans 10.4 how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a witness? Naaman was called by God through Elisha. Don't miss that part. Naaman showed up in the wrong place. He went to the king's palace to seek healing. And then God through Elisha said, no, no, that's not where your healing's found. You got to come to me if you want to be healed. He was called before he was healed. So are we, if you have come to know Christ. Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of God's calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? We were all in the wrong spot until God called us to himself for healing. Naaman initially resisted God's plan for his healing. We saw that in great detail. He thought, this isn't the way it should be done. This isn't the way it even can be done. This makes no sense. This is ridiculous. We're the same way. Titus 3, 3 through 5, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, just like Naaman. But 
when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Just like Naaman. Specifically, Naaman expected something from God that is not part of God's character and the way that he operates. Sensationalism, right? God doesn't really know what he's doing. It should be done this way. It should be a lot more spectacle. But we know Psalm 46.10, God says, Be still and know that I am God. That's the way I work. Stop and let me do it. I love that with kids too, right? We, we see this all the time. One of the, the most frustrating things that my kids ever say to me is, you just don't understand, right? I, I love that. Right, from my nine-year-old, right? Hey, help me with this math problem. Okay, here's how you do it. No, you just don't get it. Okay, that's bold, right? You're nine. I'm older than nine. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I know how to do this math problem, right? Or, or whatever the life circumstance is, right? And, and their view is you just don't get it. I'm like, well, I've been you. You haven't been me. I'm, I, I get it, right? God gets it. His ways are not inadequate. Often we look at him and go, yeah, that's not a very good way to do that. I can probably come up with something better. I mean, we don't think that consciously, but that's what's going on in, in our heart. And finally, Naaman was encouraged by others. Right? He, when he heard this, he's like, nope, that's foolish. I'm not doing it. I'm headed back to Damascus. And his servant said, no, come on, Naaman, slow down. Let's, let's just give this God of Israel Let's do what he says and see what happens. Right? He was encouraged by others. You and I need that as well, both before and after salvation. First Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This is a gospel lesson. Now, lest you think that, you know, I'm just over-extrapolating a, uh, an Old Testament text, right, and inserting things that aren't intended to be there, turn with me for a moment to Luke chapter 4. Jesus actually mentions Naaman. Haha, <laughs> I got to cheat. Right, Luke chapter 4, for some context while you're turning there, this is early in Christ's ministry. He's mostly been ministering in, in Galilee. He's been to Capernaum. He goes back home to his home city of Nazareth for the first time in his public ministry. And as was his custom, he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he teaches there in the synagogue. And everyone is, is impressed with his teaching, but they're confused because they know this guy. Right? Luke chapter 4, beginning in the latter half of verse 22. And they were wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips because they said, is this not Joseph's son? In other words, we've known you since you were a toddler. Where are you coming up with this stuff? And Jesus said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. In other words, prove it. We've heard you did some amazing things in Capernaum. If you're really some great prophet, even though we know you're a carpenter, then prove it. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I tell, I tell you the truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. So now he's going all the way back to 1 Kings. When the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow, in other words, to a pagan. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying, look, you, you guys are 
are confused because you think you know who I am, and that's preventing you from accepting what I have to say. Right? He's saying you don't want to believe that I have something to offer you in, in relation to your eternal souls because you saw me playing hoops in the streets when I was seven. You don't think I have something to tell you about your salvation because I attended your son's bar mitzvah. You're so familiar, you're missing the lesson. And he says that's the same thing that it was in Elisha's time. Israel was so familiar with God, but not personally invested, that they didn't have the faith to be healed. So God healed a pagan. He went outside because you weren't willing to see what was staring you right in the face. Of course, Christ is relating that to his message. And what was his message? The gospel says, back then was like now. you got to learn from that. That was a gospel message, and so is what I'm saying. Gospel message with a particular warning. Right? Sometimes familiarity can make us miss what God has to offer. In a room this size, there are likely some here that are very familiar with the facts of the gospel. Who God is, what he's done. Right? You've read the Bible but like those living in Nazareth at Christ's time and like the Israelites during Elisha's time, you may have missed the personal application of God's mercy in your own life. Knowing the facts does not lead to healing. Humility and faith lead to healing. There's a difference. So a startling conversion by God's mercy. In the second part of the chapter, we're going to see this attitude that Jesus just talked about. right? Someone who should know better but missing God's mercy in their own life, we're going to see that personified in a man named Gehazi. And Gehazi is going to not only have unbelief, which is a problem, but he's going to, he's going to commit a, another issue as well, which is where we're going to see God defend his free gift of mercy. So we pick it up in verse 20. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, Behold, my master has spared this Naaman, the Aramean, right? You can hear the contempt already. By not receiving from his hands what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw one running to meet him, he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. Well, that's a pretty cunning lie. Naaman said, be pleased to take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them to two of his servants. And they carried them before him. When he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and deposited them in the house. And he sent the men away and they departed. But he went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. Well, that's an even bolder lie. Then he said to him, did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper as white as snow quite the flip side of the coin that we have here from, from Naaman's eventual response. The first thing we see in, in Gehazi is that selfishness causes blindness to God's works. Here's a man who, even more than all of Israel, should understand how God works. He's been serving Elisha. 
I mean, two weeks ago, we saw Elisha raise a boy from the dead. Gehazi was part of that. He's seen that happen. If there's anyone that should know who God is and how he works, it's this guy. And yet he totally misses what God just did to save Naaman. He's blind to it. Right? He doesn't see not only the beauty of what God did for Naaman, but really the beauty of what he did for Israel. God just converted the commanding general of Israel's enemy. I mean, what a blessing that is. But Gehazi is too focused on himself to even recognize what God has just done. He doesn't see it. All he sees is an opportunity for himself. Note the difference in Gehazi's statement in verse 20 and Elisha's in verse 16. Back up in verse 16, when Naaman tries to pay for his healing, Elisha says this, As the Lord lives, literally, by the life of Yahweh, before whom I stand, I will take nothing. Now, Elisha has said this before. He may not remember it, but he's used this phrase before. As the Lord lives before whom I stand. What does that mean? That's Elisha's way of saying, look, I'm a passive participant in this. I'm standing before God. I I didn't do anything. God is the one moving. He's the one that initiated this. He's the one that acted. I'm just a passive mouthpiece. I stood here. I did nothing. Therefore, I will take nothing. I don't deserve anything, Naaman, because I didn't do anything. That was all Yahweh. Now look at Gehazi's statement in verse 20. He starts the same. As the Lord lives by the life of Yahweh, I will run after him and take something from him. The polar opposite of Elisha. Gehazi says, look, Elisha kind of messed up by sparing Naaman, right? That that word there in the original language means he, he withheld something that was due. Right? Gehazi is saying Naaman ought to have paid. He's a pagan. He's not a Jew. He should be paying. Elisha didn't, didn't do it. So, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to run after him. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. God didn't complete this, so I'm going to take action. And I'm going to run after him and take something. And if Elisha doesn't want any of it, no, you know, I'll just keep it. Right? Elisha says... I was passive, and I will take nothing. Gehazi says, I'm going to take matters into my own hand. I'm going to run, and I'm going to take something. He's totally missed what God is doing. In Naaman, we saw a prince who was willing to consider himself a servant. Right In those verses, after he comes back to Elisha, five times he called himself your servant. A prince became a servant. In Gehazi, we see a servant who wants to be a prince. He asks for a talent of silver. Remember how much that is. That likely would have made Gehazi, if not the second richest man in Israel after the king, at least close to it. He's a servant, and he's, he's got his sights on something altogether different. And it's blinded him to what God's doing. And so then we see a dramatic sentence for misrepresenting God's mercy. Now you might think, man, Elisha, that's kind of harsh. Right? Okay, so he's greedy, and he's a liar, right? He lied to Naaman, then he came back and lied to you. But, but really? I mean, you're going to make him a leper for his whole life and his descendants? That's, that's kind of brutal. But the punishment was not for Gehazi's greed, albeit that blinded him. It wasn't for his lying, although that certainly was, was wrong. The reason the sentence is so severe is because Gehazi just twisted the representation of God's free mercy in front of an immature believer. Right? When Naaman came to Elisha and said, I need to pay you 
for what God did for me. And Elisha says, no, our God doesn't work that way. His mercy is free. And Gehazi has just taken that and flipped it right back around. No, you really do have to pay. I mean, it's not for us. You know, it's these other guys we're going to give the money to. Right? That, was, that was a cunning twist. But, but Naaman now goes, oh, okay, yes, yeah, so it is what I, what I thought. There is a price for God's mercy. That's what is so severe. One commentator, Keel, says it this way, this heavy infliction was not too severe for the crime of Gehazi, for it was not the greed alone that was punished, but the ill use made of the prophet's name and thereby God's glory to gain the object of greed. By coming back to Naaman and saying, yeah, you do owe us something, Gehazi has just tarnished the free gift of God that he put on display. So God's defending that zealously. If you're going to twist my free gift, if you're going to misrepresent the way that I work, my character, my holiness before an immature believer, then there's a hefty price to pay, Gehazi. I take that seriously. And he's not fooled by the hidden motives, right? I mean, it's interesting. When he comes back to Elisha and Elisha says, where have you gone? And Gehazi says, oh, I didn't, I didn't go anywhere. I mean, not only did he lie to Elisha, but really he's, he's lying to Yahweh. Right? He knows who empowers Elisha to raise people from the dead. So he's not just thinking, I can, I can skate this by Elisha. He's saying, I can, I can get this by Yahweh. That's a foolish way to think. But it's interesting, when, when Elisha responds, he says, didn't my heart go with you? In other words, God's revealed to me exactly what went on when you were down there having a conversation with, with Naaman. But look at what he says. He says, is this a time to receive money and to receive clothes? Now, those are the two things that he physically got. Right, that's what Naaman gave Gehazi, two talents of silver and two changes of clothes. But Elisha continues, he says, Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Now, Gehazi didn't get those. So what is this? This is what Gehazi planned to purchase with all the money he just got. His motives are laid bare. God reveals to Elisha exactly what Gehazi had planned. He said, oh, you got money and clothes, and I know what you're going to do with them. Here's what your plans are. This, this greedy desire of your heart, God is aware of that, and he lays it all out for him. You can't fool God with hidden motives. And he does take it very seriously. Note that, that Elisha doesn't just say, well, you're going to be a leper for the rest of your life. I mean, that would have been a, a serious sentence anyway. He specifically says the leprosy of Naaman. He ties Gehazi's disease back to Naaman. Why would he say that? Why not just leave it at, hey, you're going to be a leper for the rest of your life? Because he wants Gehazi to understand exactly what it is that, that has caused him to receive this punishment. See, Naaman's leprosy, as a pagan, as an idolater, as someone outside the people of God, he had no recourse to healing because of his unbelief. He says, Gehazi, you wanted to take something from Naaman? Okay. You can have his disease of unbelief. Right? You clearly have not personally vested yourself in Yahweh. You know him, about him anyway. You haven't made it personal. Your disease is a disease of unbelief. It's not just outward leprosy. It's inward idolatry. That was the leprosy of Naaman before his conversion. And Gehazi's greed is idolatry, Colossians 3, 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. 
He says his, what he used to have, his cure that he couldn't, or his disease he couldn't get rid of because his unbelief put him outside the mercy of God, that's now yours. Your unbelief, your idolatry has brought this upon you. Naaman began the account as a pagan idolater, and through humility and obedience, he became a worshiper of God. Gehazi began, began this account as a member of the people of God, and through greed and selfishness, ended up as a pagan outcast. <laughs> outside the camp and outside God's mercy. So where does that leave us? What's the application for us? Well, for, for one, our own selfish desires can blind us to the beauty of God's mercy. God extending his mercy to someone like Naaman ought to just floor us. Because Naaman is us. And sometimes our own selfish greed, whether it's money in Gehazi's case, or power, or reputation, or fame, or lust, or whatever it may be, those can blind us to God moving all around us. Gehazi should have known better. He'd seen things that you and I will never see. And yet he was blind to it. But it wasn't just that. God is zealous to defend the fact that his mercy is free. We don't pay for it. We don't work for it. There's nothing we give to gain it. And he is zealous to guard that fact of his salvation. That's what sets it apart from every other false religion on the planet. There's always something to do, right? Some component that we have to provide. God is so zealous for that that he imposes severe penalties on those who are willing to twist the free gift of his mercy. And there's plenty of them out there, aren't there? televangelists and some false pastors of megachurches who preach the prosperity gospel or a twisted version of the gospel. Make no mistake, God will deal with that seriously, like he did with Naaman. He's zealous to guard the free gift of mercy, just like the crown jewels being guarded. And although this is in a context of salvation, understanding the, how God saves us, through his free mercy, there is a lesson here even for believers. Because even those of us who have been saved, we've come to God on, on his terms of a, a completely free gift where we have nothing to bring to the equation. Even after that, we can undertake ministry and other things for the wrong reasons. Right, we can do those things and it can become a mere facade of piousness where really we're serving our own selfish desires. Right, that can happen to those who preach, those who teach, getting up here for the wrong reason. You can serve in the, the children's ministry or be on a prayer team because it makes you look pious and righteous. And while that's not going to lose your salvation, it will impact your effectiveness and your relationship with a holy God who wants us to understand that, like Elisha, we ought to be able to say, as Yahweh lives, before whom I merely stand, as a passive participant in his glory, I will take nothing for myself because I did nothing and I deserve nothing. And so I serve for his glory alone. May that be the cry of our hearts if you're a believer today. And if you're not, if you see yourself in Naaman, if God saved the commanding general of Israel's army, he will save you. Come to him on his terms. Humility, humble obedience and his free gift of mercy. That would be my prayer for you today. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we are awed at the way that you work. You have the power when necessary to show up and rain fire from heaven. But most often in our individual lives, you work in a quiet, gentle breeze. You show up as the only one who has the cure for our disease of sin and selfishness. You offer it to us when we are not just not part of your family, but when we are actively your enemy, persecuting your very character and nature, and yet you offer us healing. We don't deserve any of that, but we thank you that you are a God who extends it anyway and extends it free of charge merely because that's in your nature. We thank you for that and pray that those of us who, who have come to you like Naaman in humble obedience and accepted your cure, may we not take that for granted. May we daily double-check ourselves that we are serving you not for our own glory and, and reputation, but, but that we would stand before you and take nothing because you alone deserve the credit. And for those, Father, that haven't yet come to that point, that may know a lot about you like Gehazi or the Israelites in their time. They may know the Sunday school answers and the stories. They may have heard the gospel before, but Father, if it has not been taken individually, if it has not been taken as something that is required of them to come to you and say, I am, like Naaman, sick. And like him, you are the only one that can heal that. May they do that today. May they see you for who you are as a gracious and loving Father who is the only one that can cure them of the disease of self. Father, we thank you for this day. Whether we've already worshipped corporately in the service or are headed there, I pray that, that you would bless the remainder of this day, that we would consider you, we would take time to pause, to be still and know that you are God, to worship you in, in song and in the rest of the things that you have set before us this day. May it be a day where we focus on you and not on ourselves. We praise you and thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.